Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Welcome to a sermon podcast from Salem Lutheran Church. For more information, please stay tuned at the end of the sermon. series of messages, his final steps tonight, uh, his final steps, the Lord's final steps led to his enemies. We'll talk about a a parable Jesus told uh, to and about his enemies, and we'll ponder why he would do that and what we can learn from it for our own lives and our own faith. The fifth of the six six parts of the Passion History, the account of Jesus' suffering and death, recorded by all the Gospel writers, brought together in a single reading, part five, entitled, Jesus Condemned to Death. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate said to them, It is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, the king of the Jews, who is called Christ? Pilate knew it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, because I have suffered a great deal today in a dream on account of him. But the chief priests and the elders stirred up the crowd and persuaded them to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ, the one you call the King of the Jews? Crucify him, they shouted. Crucify him, crucify him. For a third time he spoke to them, Why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him, and their shouts prevailed. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace of the governor, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head, put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him, worshiping. They spit on him, struck him in the face, and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. They mocked him and began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, 
And according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You have no power over me that was not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, Pilate took granted their demand, wanting to satisfy the crowd. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas, the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and had Jesus flogged. He then surrendered Jesus to their will to be crucified. The soldiers of the governor took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. He was passing by on his way in from the country. They seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed Jesus, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is the gospel of our Lord. The word of God for us this evening for our message recorded in St. Luke's gospel, chapter 20. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. The word of the Lord. Grace and mercy and peace are yours in abundance from God our Father and from his Son, our suffering Savior Jesus. Amen. You might have thought that Jesus would have taken the first part of that week off with the weight of the world literally resting on his shoulders with the hours now counting down until that unspeakable torment and torture would begin with that unimaginable burden weighing on him at that time you would think that having come to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that Jesus would have just taken those first three or four days of that holy week and just rested, gathered his strength for what was to come. Maybe just spent the whole time with his disciples talking to them about these things and what they would all mean. Now, he did do some of that latter task, right? We know he did spend some time privately with his disciples. Uh, the Gospels tell us uh, a long sermon he gave his disciples about the end times, about his second coming was spoken during that, that first part of the week. And certainly at the Last Supper, we have in the book of John chapters of teaching that Jesus gave his disciples that evening. And yet Jesus certainly did not take that first part of the week and simply rest. He was busy. He was working. He was teaching. The words that I just read from Luke chapter 20 almost certainly were spoken on that Tuesday of Holy Week. And, and far from trying to avoid his enemies until the last possible moment, Jesus confronted them. He spoke this parable, we're told, to implicate the enemies who were about to crucify him. His final steps led him to his enemies, and this was by his own choice and intention. The parable that Jesus told, the parable of the, the wicked tenants or the tenant farmers, it goes by different names. It's not a real hard parable to understand what's being meant, what's being symbolized by the, the different things in the parable. I think the important thing for us to understand is, is why Jesus told it and why he told it at that particular time I think that's where we can get some application, especially of this story for ourselves. The picture that Jesus uses here of, of his people as a, a vineyard is one that his audience would have recognized and, and it would have been familiar to them because it's an Old Testament picture that God used. The most notable example of that is Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, the Lord compared his people to the the vineyard that he had personally designed and planted and that he was caring for and tending. And, and then when the time came for the fruit to grow on the vineyard, he said, I went out to look on the vines and there was no fruit in my vineyard. 
That's Isaiah chapter 5 has that picture. So Jesus takes that picture and now he, he expands on a little bit by adding these other characters, right? The characters of the, the renters, the tenant farmers. Three times, as you heard, the, the owner sent servants now to go and ask for his rightful share according to their rental agreement for the vineyard that when the harvest came, they would split the crop and yet the servants were beaten up and sent away with nothing. And of course, the Old Testament gives the backdrop for this part of the parable. Its pages talked about how when God would, would send his messengers to his people to remind them that they needed to bear fruit, that they needed to abide by the terms of the covenant that he had made with them at Mount Sinai when he made them his people. For the most part, there were a couple exceptions, but for the most part, those prophets, those messengers were treated shamefully. Even Moses, that first great prophet, the people rebelled against him and complained and disobeyed him. Elijah, viciously persecuted on the run in fear of his life. Jeremiah, attempted to be killed by his enemies. Probably in the end, he and Isaiah most likely died as martyrs. When you read this part of the story, the thing that stands out to me is not only, of course, the, the wicked and evil behavior of the the tenants, but just how, how totally unreasonable they are, how, how foolish their behavior is. You, you read the story and you think, why on earth would they think that they could do this, right? What, what made them possibly think that the owner would have rented them the vineyard in the first place if they weren't expected to ever pay any rent? And, and where did they get the idea that they had any right to treat these poor servants so shabbily who were just out there trying to do their job and yet they were mistreated so horribly? And if it seems foolishly unreasonable in the parable, it was just as foolishly unreasonable in reality. The Lord had done everything for his people. He had created the nation through a miracle, starting with Abraham and Isaac. Uh, then he had grown them into a nation, rescued them from slavery in Egypt, fed them with miraculous manna in the desert, guarded them, protected them, brought them to Canaan, won their battles, caused them to prosper. With all of that that the Lord had done, often through amazing miracles that they had seen, where in the world would they ever get the idea that they should not serve and worship the Lord as their only true God? And yet the, the sad refrain of the Old Testament was that, by and large, they had not. They had strayed and worshipped false gods. Well, then, of course, things got worse. The owner of the vineyard says, all right, the servants were not able to collect any of the rent. My last option is I'm going to send my son. He will have more of an impact. He will be able to collect this rent. But as you heard, the tenants said, ooh, this is him. This is the one who's going to inherit the vineyard. If we get him out of the way, you know the old saying, right? Possession is nine-tenths of the law. So if we've killed off the heir, well, then the vineyard surely will be ours to keep. And again, what you can't help but notice besides the, the utter wickedness of these men was, was just their foolishness. Where in the world would they get the idea that by killing the heir that they are somehow going to get come out ahead in this transaction, that this is going to work out well for them? How foolish and unreasonable their behavior is. And so by the time Jesus gets to the end of the story and says, what's going to happen to those renters? 
we can't help but agree with his verdict that when the owner of the vineyard shows up, he is going to deal with these tenants forcefully with death and destruction, and we all can't help but say that those tenants deserved exactly what they would get. But the problem is, when we say that, we kind of are also condemning ourselves. Think about it again. Why would Jesus choose this time to speak that parable? Two days before it would all be fulfilled, why would he go and right in the presence of his enemies tell them exactly what it was that they were going to do right before they would go and do it? And I think part of the answer is that he was intending to cut off every excuse that there was no way that those enemies could say that we didn't know, we had no idea what we were doing. In fact, St. Luke makes it clear at the very end of that reading, right? That those enemies, the chief priests and teachers of the law, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying in that parable. They knew that he was saying that he was the son in the parable, and that therefore, since they knew who the owner of the vineyard was in that Old Testament picture, right? that he was claiming to be the Son of God, that he was saying that he was God's last and greatest messenger to the people of Israel, and that he was also their last chance for them to listen to him and to follow the things that he was telling them to do. He told them that they were going to kill him and bring destruction on themselves, and then they turned right around and went out and did it. And surely he was showing them that their actions were just as foolish and just as wicked as those tenant farmers in the parable. In fact, a whole lot more wicked because he wasn't just the son of a vineyard owner. He was the son of God and that they would have no excuse whatsoever for what they did. But as I said, when we draw that conclusion about those tenant farmers, we kind of end up condemning ourselves in the process. Think about it. What excuse do we have for our failure to keep God's commandments? Can we say that God really doesn't deserve it? God really hasn't done all that much for us so that we really think that we owe him a, a life of godliness and obedience. Well, that would be a pretty blasphemously foolish thing to say, right? Of course we owe these things to the Lord because if he did everything for Israel, he surely done everything for us too. He, he's created us. He's the one who designed our, our bodies and our minds and gave us health and strength. He, he created our world with its wonders and its, its natural fruitfulness that feeds us. He's given us people and, and friends and companions on, on our life's journey. Everything we have, right? And for a lot of us, a whole lot of earthly prosperity besides the bare minimum. All of it we owe to him. How in the world can we possibly make the excuse that God doesn't really deserve our life of service to him. Or maybe can we try to make a different excuse? Can we make the excuse that we really didn't know any better? That all of this sin and disobedience was just some sort of colossal misunderstanding because we had no idea of what it was that God really was expecting us to do. Well, that would be just as foolish of an excuse if we take that route, wouldn't it be? Of course we know. 
Hasn't God, in fact, written his, his will on the human heart so that even by nature we have a conscience that guides us in the area of right and wrong? And just in case there's any unclarity about that in our minds, about what it is we're supposed to do, the Lord has gone a step further, of course, and written his will down in the Bible for us, and all of us have been taught about it. Can we really make the excuse that we didn't know that we were supposed to be kind rather than vengeful, or content and thankful rather than greedy and cynical, that we were supposed to be obedient rather than rebellious and trusting rather than angry? Of course we can't make that kind of excuse. And if we try to make those excuses, they sound just as ridiculous as the actions of those vineyard owners. St. Paul says in the book of Romans, in fact, he says this a couple different places, that one of the main purposes of God's law, he says, is to silence every mouth. That is to keep us from being able to even try to make such foolish excuses for our sins. And so if we think that the behavior of the Jewish leaders the behavior of the wicked tenant farmers is a, a particularly unreasonable kind of foolishness and wickedness. We would be right, but it's pretty hard to avoid drawing the exact same conclusion about ourselves. But I think Jesus had another reason for telling this parable to his enemies at this particular time. In a way, it was also to show them his love, because he wanted to give them every opportunity to repent. Think about what Jesus says as they're nailing him to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And, and when he says that, I don't think he's referring only to the soldiers who have the hammers in their hands, right? But, but to everyone who had conspired against him to put him on the cross. They do not know what they are doing. This in spite of the fact that just two days before that, Jesus had told them exactly what they were doing. He first cuts off every excuse for their wickedness and then suffers and dies to pay for that very wickedness, all the while praying that they be forgiven for that very wickedness that he had just warned them about two days earlier. Can there be a, a deeper and greater kind of grace, of undeserved kind of love than this? And this is really, really good news for you and me. Because you see, friends, what, what I learned from this parable is that Jesus didn't just suffer and die to pay for the kinds of things, the kinds of sins that we think that we have a halfway decent excuse for. The excuses don't really hold up anyway, do they? But he came to suffer and die and pay for the sins for which we have absolutely no excuse whatsoever. And so Jesus comes and cuts off our excuses. He confronts us, just as he did those enemies so that we will cry out for help in repentance, praying for the help and mercy that only he can give because he knows that this is the only way for stubborn, foolish sinners like us to be saved. Jesus says in the parable that when the owner would kill the original tenants, that he would then give the vineyard to other tenants to use. And, and really, this is where you and I come into the story. 
We are now the ones who, who have heard the word of God, the ones who have been taught about this incredible place that we have in God's family by his grace in Jesus. And so now it's your turn and mine to take our place in that parable. You now are the renters. You are the tenants to whom God has entrusted his vineyard. Don't make the same mistake as those original tenants in Jesus' story. Give the Lord the fruit that he so very much deserves, which is your worship, your praise, your, your heartfelt prayers, and yes, living the kind of life that is fitting for a child of God to live. And when that foolish sinner rises up inside you again, and when the Lord, in response, sends his message and his messengers to you, just like he did to those original tenants, don't respond the way they did. Don't ignore that message and that warning. Don't become hostile. Don't make excuses. But repent and rejoice that you have a Savior who died for the things for which you have no excuse. Jesus still loved those enemies of his. He loved them enough to confront them. He loved them enough to cut off every excuse that they could make. They could never say that there was any lack of love shown to them by Jesus. He loved them enough to warn them, and he loved them enough to die for them. And he shown the very same grace and love for you and me. He speaks to us in his word. He gives us every possible chance to repent. He shows us love and grace that we surely don't deserve. Dear Lord, by your spirit, crush our stubborn foolishness, our self-centered tendencies, and instead make it our goal to desire to do your will, to bear fruit for your name, and ultimately to have the goal of seeing your face in glory. For your mercy's sake, we ask it. Amen. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will keep and guard your hearts and minds in the one true faith in Jesus. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to a sermon podcast from Salem Evangelical Lutheran Church. If you have any further questions or would like to learn more about Salem Lutheran and its ministry, please check out our website at www.salemevlutheran.org. Once again, that is www.salemev l-u-t-h-e-r-a-n dot o-r-g. May God bless you today and every day.